Good morning. Just by a show of hands real quick, how many of you were here last week? Thanks for coming back. Yeah. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Gabe Hendricks, and I won't go through the whole introduction again, but I've been here a long time. Um, and I'm always amazed at how the Lord works, even this morning in uh, welcoming new members. Just one quick story there. Elise, wherever she ran off to, I don't see her now. But anyway, Elise Rice, I met her mother, Jalen, when Jalen was three years old. Yeah, Jalen was three, and now we see Elise joining fellowship. And to me, that's just, again, the goodness, the mercy, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that through generations, Elise now wants to be here and wants to be a part of what's going on here. And for me to have known her mother, met her mother when her mother was three years old, it's just a beautiful picture. So, uh, last week, last week we talked about the incredible love of the Lord Jesus. Him seeking us and then providing the only way possible for us to be at peace with God, at peace with a holy God. And that's through the fact that Jesus bore our sin in his body he shed his precious blood, gave up his life, all of that to purchase his bride, his church. And he was the only one that could pay the price, the only one. His perfect life given for us. First thing I want to do, and again, Colleen just read our scripture, and thank you, Colleen. Um, but the first thing I want to do is read something that I think is very appropriate for today. It's been appropriate, honestly, down through the ages. Um, but I think for where the Lord has me speaking this morning, um, I just want to read this to, to lead into it. This book, which some of you have a copy of, some I know are using your phones and all those things, and that's great. But I believe this book is the absolute perfect word of God. Now, even as I say that, I readily admit I don't fully understand it, and I never will fully understand it, because I am a finite created being, and this is the word of a perfect, infinite God. But I also believe that in his grace and mercy, he has put his perfect word in our hands. He is capable of doing that. Because I have had conversations lately with people that say, they don't, the gospels don't line up. They don't say the same thing. It can't possibly be true. But the Bible also tells us to lean not on our own, on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Christ, trust Christ. So even as we look at the word this morning, let me read this to you. This is out of, 2 Timothy, beginning at the last couple verses of chapter 3 into, verse, into chapter 4. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be confident, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom... Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, 
reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And folks, if I can stress anything this morning, it's don't walk away from this. Don't walk away from God's word. It is the truth. Whether we believe that or not, it is the truth. It is the truth. Okay? Last week, like I said, we talked about this incredible love of the Lord Jesus Christ for us, which is, we could speak about that week after week after week after year. This morning, and again, I guess I would just give you a little teaser just in saying that I think it was back in May before Mike went on sabbatical that I was, the elders graciously let me sit in with them as they were deciding who was going to preach when, who was going to fill the pulpit. And I didn't think they were going to ask me because I'm not an elder, I'm just one of you. But they said, actually it was Dr. Noah who said, Gabe, which one are you taking? He didn't even give me an option. He just said, which one are you taking? And I chose last week. And then about three or four days later, Tom Hall, who graciously said he'll take this one, I went to him because I felt like God was leading me and saying, I had you speak about last week, but I need you to speak about this week too. So I went to Tom. I said, hey, Tom, would you mind if I took that from you? I feel like that's what God has for me. And Tom was gracious enough to do that. So here I am in the pulpit. So the comparison from last week to this week is like day and night, light and dark, beautiful and tragic. Ah. I'm just going to read a couple verses that Colleen just read for us again, just to start us off. Verse 49 of Matthew 13 says, So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's rugged in and of itself to hear that, okay, to hear that. But it speaks about, so it will be at the close of the age. And I believe, from my understanding, is that that age is what the age we're in right now, which is the church age. Even this morning, we saw testimony that Christ is building his church. Four people commit to membership here, part of the church. We're in this age where the church is being grown around the world. As we speak, in this very moment, Christ is drawing people to himself. People are repenting, being saved, becoming part of the church. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But it says that the, at the close of the age, at the close of the age, which makes me think at some point in the future, this isn't going to be. This age we're in is going to come to an end. Okay? Which means... From my perspective, the salvation found in Christ Jesus at this point is no longer available as we know it today. Today, any one of us, any one of you could confess and be saved. That's what scripture says. 
But at this point, it changes. It changes. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's in real contrast to in Revelation where Jesus says that at some point in the future, he's going to wipe away every tear. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, no more any of that. But here, Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that in itself makes me think, I don't really know how bad it would be that I would be gnashing my teeth. But it's there. It's there. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, 2 Thessalonians is where I'm going to start. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And this is Christ's coming. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Folks, that's a brutal picture. The same Jesus who is love personified. And I can't even begin to understand the depth of his love. But here, he's coming back not as the sacrificial lamb, but as one who has the right to judge. To judge. And it's like standing in a courtroom. And somebody guilty of something is standing before the judge waiting for the sentence. It's not a pretty picture, but that is in no comparison to the severity of what it says here. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. I don't wish that on anyone, on anyone. If you flip over just to the left a few pages, 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 5. The fan keeps blowing my pages here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. In 2 Thessalonians, it says eternal destruction that never ends. In 1 Thessalonians, Jesus describes it as no escape. No escape. We live in an age today where people don't believe God is holy. God is love. That's what we hear a lot, even from the unbelieving world. Well, God is love. God would never do that. He would never... No, God is love. People bank on it. And where I really am not fascinated, but it's almost heartbreaking, you, you've known people just the same as I have over the years, and they're not believers. They don't, they don't recognize Christ in any way. But when they have a family member die, all of a sudden they say things like, well, I'm really glad they're in heaven, and I'm going to see them one day. 
and it makes them feel good. But it's interesting that they give no recognition in the present time to who Christ is and what he commands, yet they're banking on him being forgiving even when they have given him no credence in their life whatsoever. No escape. No escape for those who deny Christ. Second Peter, if you want to flip over to Second Peter. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says this, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, that now exist, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's truth, folks. And it's very difficult for me to even read that. But it's truth, and it is coming. And we all walk in here this morning and go, oh, it's good to be here, it's good to be together, and it's great. And then Jesus says, I got some truth for you this morning. That's sobering. Sobering. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In Matthew, Jesus describes it as a fiery furnace. Here, it's described as a lake of fire. Either way horrendous, beyond my comprehension. And this is the future for everyone who denies Jesus Christ. There's no easy way to say that. That is what Scripture says. We're in this age currently where the gospel is readily available. You can be saved this very moment. But there's coming a time when judgment will happen. Will happen. As I read these verses, these different portions of Scripture, and again, as bad as they are, they're worse. 
Because we, even this morning, talking with one of your elders, and I'm always fascinated how God's Spirit can work just instantly, instantly, instantly. Because I hadn't thought of this, but I talked to one of the elders, and it's like, that is so spot on. But one of the elders this morning shared with me the fact that because we live under and in this age of grace, we don't have any understanding at all of what it's like not to live in the presence of God. So to try and imagine being outside the presence of God and all that is there, and in the end, all the evil is cast there. And so, as bad as we read this and think, man, that's just horrid, it's going to be worse. Because we can't even comprehend how bad it is. We really can't. We really can't. Isn't this good, really fun stuff this morning, folks? <laughs> just a little levity because as I read these, it gives me a healthy fear of the Lord. And I love Jesus. And I belong to him. But I still fear him. And I fear him in a healthy way. Because he is God. And he is holy. And he is holy. I think real quick, I'm going to give you a real short version of my salvation story because I think it's really appropriate for, having, for God having me speak about this this morning. When I was 21 years old, I got confronted point blank with the gospel. And I didn't really understand the love of Jesus. That really wasn't kind of in the picture at the time. But what was very clear to me, very, very clear to me, was hell. And I was headed there because I, had, I did not believe in Jesus. And I understood that. I didn't, understood, I didn't understand how much he loved me, I really wasn't feeling the love of Jesus drawing me to myself, which is exactly the opposite of my wife's conversion story. That's what got her up out of her seat that day. She felt Jesus' love. And that's the beauty of how he works. But for me, what I needed in his wisdom was I needed a healthy dose of my reality, my future. And what I've just read, all these verses, that was my future. And that is what brought me to faith. I said, I don't want that. Please, save me. And he did. But the fear of hell is what drew me to Christ. So I think it's appropriate to talk about the fear of hell because it's reality, and it's reality for people every day, every day around the world. I don't know what the numbers are, but it's got to be a lot. People die every day without Jesus. That's their future and it's not just for five years or 10 years or 20 years or 100 years. It never ends. Heaven and the presence of God never ends. Hell and no presence of God never ends. Never ends. Old Testament, go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's vision of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, 
high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's not unfamiliar scripture. I'm sure you've read it. I'm sure you've heard it. Just a couple of things there. When scripture describes God, it's like 1 John 4. It's famous. God is love. God is love. And we know that to be true. God is love. We also know that God is merciful. We also know that God is patient and kind and long-suffering and just and lots of attributes, even beyond what I know. But here, here, the seraphim, okay? These are created creatures, and their duty is to be in the presence of the Lord, just to continually give worship, okay? They have the ability to be in the presence of the Lord and not burn up. But even the seraphim, it says, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. They had six wings, and two of them covered their faces. And why? Well, I think it goes back to Moses. I think it's the same picture of Moses. When he went up in the burning bush, and when he came down, his face was aglow, so bright people couldn't look at him. Here, even the seraphim know they can't look on the full-on glory of God. They've got to cover their own faces for their own protection. And these are creatures designed and created to be in his presence. Yet they still cover their faces. And it says they cover their feet, which again I think is a picture also of Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain and he got to the bush and the Lord said, take off your sandals because where you're standing is holy ground. What made the ground holy? God is present very present right there. So he said, Moses, take off those shoes because this is holy ground. Holy ground. The main point I want to make out of these five verses in, in the first cha or chapter 6 of Isaiah is that here, God himself, Christ the Lord, the king of the universe, is described as holy, holy, holy. Elsewhere in Scripture, it doesn't say God is love, 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 or God is peace, peace, peace. He is all those things. But the emphasis here is on his holiness. And I am guilty of taking his holiness for granted. Because when I think of my own life, that's what holiness does. It makes me look at my own life and realize that I have at times made a mockery of his holiness. We as a church, as the church worldwide, I don't know that we really grapple with the holiness of God. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. Luke chapter 5, back in the New Testament.
There's this scene. Again, it's nothing new. You know it. It's familiar. The guys, his apostles, his, his guys, the people he's with, tight with, they've been out fishing. They've been fishing all night. Jesus comes on the scene. And he basically says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. The guys hadn't caught anything all night. Terrible night fishing. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So Jesus revealed just a, just a fraction of who he is. And Peter's reaction was, go away. I'm sinful. I can't be in your presence. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Through the shed blood of Christ, we can be in his presence. But Peter here, I think, gives a really healthy, healthy picture of if God manifested his holiness right here in this place at this moment in a way that we're not used to, I think we would all hit the floor. I really do. I really do. There's another story in First Chronicles of Uzzah, and he's been assigned to carry the ark on a cart. Long story short, because it's, I could, I could spend the whole time there. But long story short, they're carrying it. Got a new cart, he and another guy. And they stumble. Whatever happens, they stumble. And Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark so it doesn't fall in the dirt. And you know what happens to him? He dies right there on the spot. And when I first, several times I read that, I thought, man, what in the world? He was just trying to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall. But then I started to realize that if it would have fell, it just would have fell in the dirt. But the ark was holy. And sinful man can't touch holiness, can't be in the presence of holiness. And because Uzzah made the assumption that I'm doing a good thing here, God said, no, let it fall. That's what he should have done. The dirt is just dirt. Unholy man. And it's brutal. But God is holy. And even as I say that, I think, what in the world does that really mean? What does that really mean? But I think it's healthy that we ponder and contemplate the holiness of Christ. Because it is the one thing that is stressed in triplicate. Holy, holy, holy. It's like he's saying, people, listen, listen, listen. I am holy. Remember that. Let that influence how you think and what you do and what you say. 
So getting back to the scripture where it says that Jesus is going to send his angels and they're going to separate the evil from the righteous, which is hard. So the question for me and the question for us and the question for all of us is, what's the dividing line of evil and righteous? What's the dividing line? Go to the book of 1 John, if you would. New Testament. First John chapter 4, verse 10, says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we know, you're probably familiar sitting here this morning, that you know that was the purpose of Christ leaving his throne, giving up all that is rightfully his, taking on our sin, being separated from his Father for an opportunity for us to live. That's not new. We understand that. At least we, we have an understanding of it. One more chapter over in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12 says this, and this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, folks, lots of things have been argued down through the generations about this book. What does it really say? Does God really mean that? This couple of verses here, I think, are pretty black and white. If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. It's pretty clear. The dividing line is very, very clear. Jesus Christ is the dividing line. The book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set, set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So twice in those two verses, it's stated, in Christ Jesus. So the question I ask myself and the question you ask yourself is, am I in Christ Jesus? Does his shed blood cover my life? Do I know that for sure? Because here it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are not, there is condemnation, and it never ends. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, and this is Jesus himself speaking, and he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven. This one, folks, strikes me right in the heart. Because I have been guilty of denying. Even after conversion, I have been guilty. And my prayer continually, and what I'm 
wake up in the morning and endeavor to do is that if God gives me an opportunity to, to say the name Jesus, to speak the name Jesus, to stand up and say, yes, I believe in Jesus, that I will. And that I won't be afraid of the moment of being ridiculed and pointed out. And this one probably strikes you the same way because I'll bet you dollars to donuts. Every one of you could say, yeah, I can name a time when I was afraid. I didn't want to say something because I didn't want to look stupid or I didn't want to be embarrassed. Or... And this doesn't change your salvation. If you're a follower of Christ and this happens, yes, we sin, I sin, I'm guilty. Confess, forgiven. Doesn't change your status for eternity. But I think it's a healthy reminder that Jesus says, if you will stand up for me before the world, I will stand up for you before my Father. Years ago, I had somebody kind of try to give me a description of what that looks like. And, it's, and they, this person said, it's like in heaven in the throne room, there's God the Father sitting on the throne, Jesus seated at his right hand in the place of royalty. And Gabe Hendricks walks up to the stand, and God the Father says, guilty. And Jesus gets out of his seat, comes around, and stands in front of me and says, Father, this one's mine. Amen. Welcome. It's not me. It's Jesus intervening on my behalf because I have, in this life, I have put my trust in him. And it's still available today. It's still available today. The dividing line between evil and righteous is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the dividing line. And he is the dividing line because he has the authority and the right to be that dividing line. Because everything exists because he chose to create. He owns everything. Everything. So he is the righteous judge. What's the heart of the Lord towards us? In spite of all of this darkness that we read that is the future for all those that are outside of Christ, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, towards me, towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord's heart is that we would all repent and trust him. That is God's heart for us. He wants us to live and to live with him and experience true life. Because what we know now, yeah, there's times it's great and there's times it's really hard. But life in the presence, the life that Charlie Eubanks is experiencing right now, I can't even imagine how good it is. But that's the promise. That's the promise. Repentance. Repentance. Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise. He was patient with me. I denied him for a long time. But he brought me to repentance. He gave me a, 
clear, healthy view of my future without him. I don't want that. I don't want any part of that. John chapter 6. And I know we're jumping around, but I just feel like we need to hear from different places. John chapter 6. Verses 35 to 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Folks, Christ is the only answer to peace with a holy God. Christ is the only answer. It's not us. It's not how many good works we can do. It's not. It's not. It is Jesus Christ and his finished perfect work. That's the answer. And that will be the separation at the close of the age. That will be the separation. Same chapter. Okay? And this is just a, a picture of reality. Ch same chapter, starting at verse 66. It says, after this, after these words where Jesus said, you, you, you've got to trust me. I am the bread of life. You have, to, you have to trust me. And it says, after this, many of his disciples, guys, gals had been walking with him, called, considered themselves followers of Jesus, says they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And what's... One of the things that really struck me on this little piece of Scripture is that these were people that were physically in the presence of Jesus, walking with him, talking with him, watching the miracles, watching the feedings of thousands, watching the people get healed and people come out of the grave, watching. And when they were confronted with the fact that it's a personal relationship with the living God, that they said, this is too hard, and they turned. Now, I don't know. Scripture doesn't say what happens to them. Were they true believers? I don't know. But I think the point here is for us simply is that the gospel is very easy. It's believe in Jesus, right? Confess your sin and believe in Jesus. But the gospel is very difficult because what the gospel asks of each one of us is that we die to ourself. And the biggest hurdle in my life that I have to get over almost every minute of every day is my pride. Part of me wants to say, I did something good. Wait a minute, I get some kind of credit, don't I? I've had many conversations with people over the years. Hey, if you were to die right now, do you know where you'd go? Yeah, where would you go? Heaven. 
Why? Because I'm a good person. And when we look at each other, we can make those kind of comparisons. We can look at each other and go, well, maybe I am a little better than you, but maybe I'm a little worse than you, but hey, it's all going to work out. We're all good, basically. No. No. It comes down to Jesus Christ. And Scripture is true that each one of us will make that choice. We'll make that choice. But here's the kicker in making that choice, folks. Because Christ is holy, he is going to honor your choice. And if you choose him, then his promise is you will be with him forever. But if you say, no thanks in this life, I don't need him, he will honor that too. Somebody asked me recently, do you believe that God sends people to hell? Do you really believe that? The, the loving God that he is, you believe that God sends people to hell? And I had never had anybody ever ask me that point blank. And so I just thought, and then I kind of hemmed it around, and I kind of came up with an answer of, well, Scripture has got many clear pictures and passages where people are in hell. I can't deny that. And that's kind of how the conversation ended. Because this person speaking to me was of the camp that God doesn't send people to hell. Hell doesn't really exist. But as the Spirit of God works and stirring in me, and I couldn't let it go, I couldn't let it go, I couldn't let it go, my answer today would be, no, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose it. How does that sit with you? That's hard. That's hard because Jesus says the gospel is here. I am the way, the truth, and life. Trust me and you will be saved and you will be with me forever. But it also says if you walk away, if you say no, I don't need you, he will honor that. People make their own choice. Christ doesn't save all 40 or 50 of you together. He deals with you as individuals because it's a personal relationship. But as an individual, when confronted at 18 years old, I said, nope, I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person. And three years later, God confronted me again and gave me a vision a clear, healthy vision of life without him for eternity, and it literally scared the hell out of me. He brought me to faith using terror, and the terror was simply his holiness. His holiness. Remember that. Christ will honor your choice. So this leads us back to the text, and I know we've been all over... And again, I'll just read that last bit. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ, at this point, sends his angels to make that separation. 
Those that have said, no, thank you, I don't, need, I don't need Jesus. And those that have said, please, Jesus, I need you. And he will make that separation. And it's an eternal separation. Eternal separation. The gospel, the age we're in, the church age, the gospel, salvation is available today. Today. But at some point in the future, it won't be. That church age comes to a close. But the gospel and salvation are available today, this very moment. So my question to you, my question to myself, where do you find yourself this morning? Where do you find yourself this morning? Are you, as an individual, hidden in Christ? Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hidden in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith in the Son of God and his perfect life, death, resurrection. That's the dividing line, folks. That's the dividing line. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30 says, Jesus speaking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the reason I want to read that, folks, is because to me, that's the absolute perfect security of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he says, Gabe, if you belong to me, I hold you in my hand, and no one, nothing, can snatch you away. Even my idiotic choices in my own life can't remove me from the grip of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times people I've heard over the years say, yeah, I'm just hanging on to Jesus for everything I'm worth. But the reality is, nope. He's holding us. He's holding us. And I don't have the ability to break away. So I'm so, so thankful for the truth of that. So, Melissa, we're coming to the table, right? You guys can work your way up. So the table, and we do this often, and I'm thankful we do this often, because the table represents our entire hope. It's a remembrance of the fact that Jesus gave his body and his blood
for us. And I hope, folks, that this table never is blasé. I hope you never just go through the motions, but that every time we would have the privilege of doing this, that we would try and understand the severity and the depth that it is. That it is. To believe in Christ, to bring, come to that point in your life, and you, by faith, ask him to forgive you, it's big, but it's rather simple. But this part of the salvation plan, rugged, cost God himself his life. Last thing I'll read, and then we'll come to the table. It's out of the book of Mark, first chapter, two verses. It says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Come to the table.